We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. T-minus two to episode 100. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 98 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo Beginnings. We will start with an overview of the program. The Apollo program, or Project Apollo, was the third U.S. human spaceflight program carried out by NASA which accomplished landing the first 12 humans on the moon from 1969 to 1972. The Apollo program was conceived early in 1960 during the Eisenhower administration as a follow-up to America's Mercury program. I'm sure you recall that the Mercury capsule could only support one astronaut on a limited Earth orbital mission. The Apollo spacecraft was capable of carrying three astronauts to a space station or a circumlunar flight, and eventually to a lunar landing. The program was named after the Greek god of light, music, and sun by NASA manager Abe Silverstein. Silverstein chose the name early in 1960 because he felt Apollo riding his chariots across the sun, was appropriate to the grand scale of the proposed program. Apollo was later dedicated to President John F. Kennedy's national goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth by the end of the 1960s, which he proposed in a May 25, 1961 address to Congress. Let it be clear that I am asking the Congress and the country to accept a firm commitment to a new course of action, a course which will last for many years and carry very heavy costs. If we are to go only halfway or reduce our sights in the face of difficulty, in my judgment, it would be better not to go at all. Because it is a heavy burden, and uh, there is no sense in uh, agreeing uh, or desiring that the United States take an affirmative position in outer space unless we are prepared to do the work and bear the burdens to make it successful. If we are not, we should decide today and this year. President Kennedy proposed the manned lunar landing as the focus of the U.S. space program. But at the time of his address, only one American, Lieutenant Commander Alan B. Shepard, Jr., had been into space on a suborbital lob shot lasting 15 minutes. No rocket launch vehicle was available for a lunar voyage, and there was no agreed-upon method for placing any kind of spacecraft safely on the lunar surface and getting it back to the Earth. 
nor was there an agreement with NASA itself on how it should be done. Kennedy's decision, although bold and startling at the time, was not made at random, nor did it lack a sound engineering base. Subcommittees of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA, which was the predecessor of NASA, had regularly surveyed aeronautical needs and pointed out problems for immediate resolution and specific areas for advanced research. After NASA's creation in October 1958, its leaders continued to operate in this fashion and less than a year later set up a group to study what the agency should do in near-Earth and deep space exploration. Among the items listed by that group was a lunar landing, a proposal also discussed in circles outside NASA as a means for achieving and demonstrating technological supremacy in space. From the time Russia launched its first Sputnik in October 1957, many Americans had viewed the moon as a logical goal. A two-nation space race subsequently made that destination America's national objective for the 1960s. Apollo ran from 1961 to 1972 and was supported by the two-man Gemini program, which ran concurrently with it from 1962 to 1966. Gemini missions developed some of the space travel techniques that were necessary for the success of the Apollo missions. Apollo used the Saturn family of rockets as the launch vehicle. The flights of Apollo were the focus of worldwide reporting and attention. The success of these flights is directly attributable to the less well-reported and less visible work of nearly 400,000 people in hundreds of different organizations. That the efforts of so many could be organized and coordinated so effectively is a tribute to American ingenuity and management abilities. Project Apollo encompassed more than simply sending men to the moon and back. It reflected a determination to show that humans had an important role to play in exploring space, as they had in exploring the unknown corners of the Earth in earlier centuries. That proposition was not universally accepted. From the time the space agency determined to put humans into space, many Americans argued vigorously against manned space flight on the grounds that it was unnecessary and inordinately expensive. Because of its accelerated pace, high technology, and need for reliability, Apollo's costs were high, expected to be $20 billion to $40 billion as early as mid-1961. But the program lasted longer than either Mercury or Gemini. President Kennedy knew it would be expensive, and he covered that in his address to Congress in May of 1961. Let it be clear that I am asking the Congress and the country to accept a firm commitment to a new course of action, a course which will last for many years and carry very heavy costs. If we are to go only halfway or reduce our sights in the face of difficulty, in my judgment, it would be better not to go at all. Because it is a heavy burden. 
And uh, there is no sense in uh, agreeing uh, or desiring that the United States take an affirmative position in outer space unless we are prepared to do the work and bear the burdens to make it successful. If we are not, we should decide today and this year. Apollo required seven years of development and test before men could fly its machines. Apollo crafts carried men into space from October 1968 through July 1975. The Apollo program itself recorded its final return from the moon on Flight 17 in December 1972, after a dozen men had made six successful explorations on the lunar surface. Shortly thereafter, Skylab, using the basic Saturn launch vehicle and Apollo spacecraft hardware, sailed into Earth orbit, supporting crews on research missions up to 84 days in length during 1973 and 74. Apollo passed from public view in July 1975, following the Apollo-Soyuz test project flight, flown by American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts to make the first international space rendezvous. Even now, Apollo stands alone in sending man missions beyond low-Earth orbit. With the overview complete, let's start at the beginning. In 1957, the NACA had the X-15 on the drawing boards. The X-15 was one of a series of rocket-propelled piloted aircraft intended to be capable of exceeding Mach 6 and climbing beyond 107,000 meters above nearly all the sensible atmosphere. That same year, in October, the Soviet Union launched the first man-made satellite, called Sputnik, on October 4, 1957. This concentrated the U.S. attention on its own fledgling space efforts. Congress, alarmed by the perceived threat to U.S. security and technological leadership, urged immediate and strong action. The President and his advisors counseled more deliberate measures. Here is Senator Lyndon Johnson on the Soviet challenge. I do not believe the facts will invite our people either to a siesta or to a hysteria. I believe the facts will inspire Americans to the greatest effort in American history. And this committee seeks only to determine what can be done, what should be done, what must be done now and for the long pull. One month later, on November 3, 1957, the Soviets orbited Sputnik 2, a 500-kilogram satellite carrying a living passenger, a dog named Laika. With this clear evidence that the Russians intended to send men into space, both the Army and the Air Force resurrected dormant plans to follow suit. In April of 1958, the Air Force contracted with the observatory at the University of Chicago to produce a new lunar photographic atlas. The Air Force published a developmental plan for its manned space program, which included 
two exploratory man in space projects, a lunar reconnaissance mission, and a manned lunar landing and return mission. The plan envisioned completion of the program in seven years at a cost of $1.5 billion. In June of 1958, the Air Force contracted with Rocketdyne to design a single-chamber rocket engine burning kerosene and liquid oxygen and producing one to one and a half million pounds of thrust. In July of 1958, after several months of debate in Congress, an agreement was reached that a new federal agency was needed to conduct all non-military activity in space. On July 29, 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958, which established NASA. This spelled the end for the Army and Air Force's lunar ambitions, but not the rocket engine. In August of 1958, Werner von Braun and his team at Huntsville, Alabama, received an assignment to develop a heavy launcher that would later be designated Saturn One. On October 1, 1958, NASA officially opened for business. It consisted mainly of four laboratories and some 8,000 employees of the NACA, an organization that had played a leading role in the development of aircraft technology since 1914. Some NACA engineers were already working on space-related problems. At Langley's Pilotless Aircraft Research Division, Aerodynamicists were acquiring important data on aerodynamic heating at speeds of Mach 10, which was unattainable in wind tunnels of the time. Instead, they were flying models of aircraft and missiles mounted on rockets. When Sputnik went up, many of these engineers were already talking about the problems of putting humans in Earth orbit. In November, before NASA was a month old, Administrator Glennon chartered a space task group at Langley and charged it with managing the United States' first project to put man in space, Project Mercury. The space task group would eventually be redesignated the Manned Spacecraft Center, a connotation of its newly expanded responsibilities for all manned projects, including Apollo. It was located on 6.5 square kilometers of Texas pasture land, 22 miles southeast of downtown Houston. Within a few months, NASA made some more acquisitions. First, the Vanguard Satellite Project, along with its 150 researchers from the Naval Research Laboratory. Second, plans and funding for several space and planetary probes from the Army and the Air Force. And third, the services of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory outside Pasadena, California, where scientists were planning an unmanned spacecraft called Ranger that would take close-up television pictures of the lunar surface before crashing into the moon. Vanguard and JPL brought a strong scientific component into NASA's activities, Many of the Vanguard scientists became administrative and technical leaders at NASA headquarters 
and at its new Space Science Center called Goddard Space Flight Center at Greenbelt, Maryland. JPL's contributions to the space program would be strongest in instrumented spacecraft for the planetary programs. It also shared with Goddard major responsibilities for development and operation of the tracking and telemetry network used in deep space operations, including Apollo. Also crucial to NASA's ambitious program in space was the ability to launch large payloads into Earth orbit and to send instruments to the planets. Rockets far exceeding the capability of existing launch vehicles were required, but only one was being seriously pursued. At the Army's Redstone Arsenal just outside Huntsville, Alabama, the free world's most experienced rocket engineers, Werner von Braun and his team built around the hundred or so Germans who developed the V-2 rocket during World War II were about to undertake construction of a vehicle called Saturn I. It was five times as powerful as the biggest U.S. rocket then available. By 1959, however, the Army had lost its last foothold on spaceflight to NASA and had no use for Saturn, nor could it provide any other pioneering work for the ambitious von Braun. But NASA could, and the Redstone Arsenal was transferred to NASA with von Braun and 4,600 employees. Their facility was renamed the George C. Marshall Space Flight Center. Within the next year, NASA would put the elements of a comprehensive space program in place. Marshall Space Flight Center would design, test, and launch the rockets and oversee their production by industry. The Manned Spacecraft Center would manage spacecraft design and testing, conduct flight operations, and train the astronauts. Goddard and JPL would be responsible for tracking, communications, and data management. At headquarters, a triumphant comprising the administrator, deputy administrator, and associate administrator managed the overall program, determining policy, preparing budget requests, and defending the program and the budgets before congressional committees. With NASA now organized, let's consider some of the significant Apollo-related events of 1959. In January, a report of the staff of the House Select Committee on Astronomics and Space Exploration entitled The Next Ten Years in Space, 1959-1969, through 1969, was released. In the report, Werner von Braun predicted a manned flight around the moon within eight to ten years and a manned lunar landing and return a few years later. NASA and industry officials envisioned similar progress. In March, the first F-1 engine was successfully tested by Rocketdyne, producing more than one million pounds of thrust. Also in March, NASA created a research steering committee on manned spaceflight. Over the next several months, this committee examined long-term human in-space problems to recommend future missions and coordination of research programs at the NASA centers. At its May 25th through 26th meeting, the committee recommended the manned lunar landing as a focal point 
for studies in propulsion, vehicle configuration, structure, and guidance requirements. Since a lunar landing would constitute an end objective, that did not have to be justified in terms of its contribution to a more useful goal. On April 1, 1959, NASA headquarters called for representatives from its field centers to serve on a research steering committee for manned spaceflight, headed by Harry Gullett, an engineering manager at Ames, who became director of the new Goddard Center in September. Gullett and nine others began their deliberations in Washington on May 25th. Alfred Eggers from Ames advocated that NASA's next step be a spacecraft capable of flying two men for one week with enough speed to escape the Earth's gravitational pull, fly by the moon, orbit that body, and return to Earth. Max Faget, one of the designers of the Mercury capsule, and George Lowe urged manned lunar landing as NASA's next objective. In the end, the GOET committee recorded its consensus on the priority of NASA objectives. Number one, man in space soonest. That was Project Mercury. Number two, ballistic probes. Number three, environmental satellite. Number four, maneuverable manned satellite. Number five, manned space flight laboratory. Number six, Lunar Reconnaissance Satellite Number 7. Lunar Landing Number 8. Mars and Venus Reconnaissance And Number 9. Mars and Venus Landing At the next meeting of the GOAT Committee, the members hardly endorsed moon landing and return as NASA's major long-range manned spaceflight goal. Although the time had come for someone in authority to start making the decisions that could lift the moon mission out of the realm of research and start it on the path toward development, Administrator Glennon could not commit NASA to any specific long-range programs, especially lunar flight, knowing that President Eisenhower intended to balance the budget no matter what. This would preclude anything beyond Project Mercury at the time. Without presidential approval, NASA could only continue its studies and wait for a more favorable moment. During the summer of 1959, Gilruth formed a new projects panel within the Space Task Group. Meeting twice in August, the panel members identified a number of areas for research and recommended that work began immediately on an advanced manned capsule, a second-generation spacecraft crewed by three men and capable of re-entering the atmosphere at speeds nearly as great as those needed to escape Earth's gravitational pull. The group was clearly planning a lunar spacecraft. Convinced that this should be the Space Task Group's next major project, the members further agreed that manned lunar landing should be the goal to design toward, and they assumed 1970 as a suitable target date. The thinking of the new projects panel, and that's what it was to Gilruth, just thinking, may have been premature, but it pointed out the need to raise the level and amount of manpower invested in planning advanced spacecraft systems. 
At a space task group management meeting on November 2nd, Gilruth assigned Strauss, Robert Pyland, John Hodge, and Caldwell Johnson to delve into preliminary design of a multi-man, probably three-man, circumlunar spacecraft and into mission analysis of trajectories, weights, and propulsion needs. The group focused on circumlunar flight as NASA's immediate objective. The team members dealt mostly with spacecraft design, but they also dipped fairly deeply into mission analysis. They adopted the idea of flying directly from the Earth to the Moon's surface. Again, however, these studies by the Space Task Group at Langley were only part of similar efforts going on concurrently at NASA headquarters, at Langley, at Ames, and at Lewis, and at several industrial contractors' plants. After the studies, the task of picking and choosing what to do would begin. At NASA headquarters toward the end of 1959, the Office of Program Planning and Evaluation, headed by Homer Stewart, drew up a 10-year plan. Much of it, especially the part dealing with manned flight, evolved from the GOAT Committee's priority list. In addition to a program of unmanned lunar and planetary exploration, it called for manned circumlunar flights and a permanent space station in Earth orbit by the late 1960s. Lunar landings were projected for some time after 1970. The headquarters plan recommended developing more powerful engines, fitting them to huge Nova-class launch vehicles as the most practical means of getting to the moon. Studies of rendezvous in space were underway as part of the Saturn vehicle lunar mission analysis, but Stewart's group anticipated that manned lunar exploration would depend on Nova. To clarify some of the thinking about designing manned spacecraft and missions for them, Administrator Glennon in December of 1959 set up another in a long string of committees, this time to try to define more precisely just what would make up the Saturn rocket systems. With Abe Silverstein as chairman, this group consisted of Colonel Norman Apold of the Air Force, Abraham Hyatt and Committee Secretary Eldon Hall of NASA, Von Braun, George P. Sutton of the Department of Defense's Advanced Research Projects Agency, and Thomas Moose of the Office of Director of Defense Research and Engineering. There had been a lot of talk about what kind of propellants to use in the vehicle's upper stages. The Lewis Laboratory had researched the potentials of liquid hydrogen in combination with liquid oxygen throughout the mid-50s. Department of Defense and NASA research was aimed at prototypes of the Centaur rocket to prove the worth of these high-energy, low-weight propellant systems. The most important result of the committee was that Silverstein and his team hammered out a unanimous recommendation that all upper stages should be fueled with hydrogen-oxygen propellants. This determination, like many others, was a significant piece of the launch vehicle puzzle. Calendar year 1959 had been fruitful for those who saw the moon as manned spaceflight's next goal. NASA's leaders were coming around to that viewpoint. 
and on January 7, 1960, in a meeting with his staff, Glennon concurred that the follow-on project to Project Mercury should have an end objective of manned flight to the moon. NASA had its 10-year plan to present to Congress and a reasonable assurance of getting President Eisenhower's approval to speed up development of a large launch vehicle. Preliminary work and discussion during 1959 turned up no insurmountable obstacles, and in mid-1960, NASA announced its intention to award contracts to study the feasibility of a manned lunar mission. The project even had a name, Apollo. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.